The Jericho Network on Westwood One. The following program is presented by the Jericho Network in association with Podcast One. Have you heard about the new Podcast One app? There is no other podcast app like this. Download the all-new Podcast One app now in the App Store or on Google Play. You can find out everything about your favorite shows and get more content from my show, Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Find articles, social media, episodes, and even make playlists. It's easy to comment and connect with other show fans, too. We all have our little community on here. You can share your favorite content and see behind-the-scene photos, which is generally just me and my dog. Uh, But anyway, uh, plus get a 360 video or watch a bunch of shows in virtual reality. Reality. Plus, get a 360 video or watch a bunch of shows in virtual reality. There's over a thousand videos on there right now. It's like you're in the studio, which in my case would be a bedroom on the top floor. Right. Uh, Anyway, uh, the new Podcast One app looks so cool and has so many things you can do, including fun things like rewards for listening. Then again, listening to my show, it's its very own reward. I'm telling you, it's it's fantastic. Uh, So what are you waiting for? Download the new Podcast One app in the App Store or on Google Play now. Podcast One presents Rock Talk Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. All the rockers, all the stories. This is incredible. Now, now, here's your host, respected rock journalist, Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to another episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Joining me, it is a triple threat of pure rock and roll. Up first, Josh Todd of the band Buck Cherry. And then after the break, we come back with Michael Monroe of Hanoi Rocks and a great new band out of Atlanta, Biters, and their lead singer, Tuck. But first, since this is rock talk, we always have a great uh, topic to discuss. Are VIP packages a waste of money, or are they money well spent? And uh, to discuss that with me, it is... Ron Young, lead singer of the band Little Caesar. Uh, pleasure to have you, Ron. It's a pleasure to be here, Mitch. How are you doing? Good, good. So I asked you on for, for this particular topic because on Facebook I saw two posts from you. One where you were merciless in your dismissal of the VIP package, and then one after where you said, okay, you know what, a few of my rock star fans have reached out to me and they've said, hey, and you you were a little more uh, conciliatory towards towards them. Um, where are you now with those VIP packages? And you know, are they a waste of money? Are they a fan? Uh, you know, something money well spent for a fan? Well, what I learned in the process was that bands are having a really, really, really hard time generating enough revenue so that they can go out and bring the music to the people you know, that want to see them. And a lot of these bands, the bigger bands, started to capitalize on, A, the fact that a lot of their fans might be more successful further on in life and have some money and were willing to spend money to have, quote-unquote, an experience that seems to be the buzzword around it. Um, and they'd be willing to spend that to get a little closer and have a little bit more access to these bands. But what I was coming to see with it is a lot of mid-level bands who, because of the economy, were starting to charge their fans in smaller, more intimate settings like clubs and theaters, these sort of VIP package, you know, fees to get close to them. And 
face it, a lot of these guys don't have the time to do that with the fans, and it seemed to be sort of an exploitive sort of experience more than it was a real connection experience. So I think it's a really, really hard thing and, and for a band to do to pull it off, to put the time and the energy and thought into it to really give them something of value. And the real problem is these days is trying to get these apathetic fans with the internet and the availability through social media to get in touch with these people and they're starting to get a little tired of it, um, to come out and really see the show and, you know, um, engage the band and the band engage the fans. And so I still really believe that it's a really dangerous practice to do, um, that you really risk alienating a fan that's starting to get tired of all this stuff. Um, and I personally still won't engage in it. Um, I, mostly for me, it's I don't want to have the pressure of feeling that I've got to treat certain people a certain way and other fans another way because I ask them to, a premium to to be accessible to me. So I I just choose not to do it. Now the other thing is is I'm more of a straight ahead blue collar working class kind of band. And I just kind of feel it's hypocritical of me to say that I empathize with people, but you're more important than another person because you paid, spent more money. And that's real sort of elitist and classist in the, in the concept of it. So yeah. I, I just think that it's something that has to be really carefully done if you're going to do it. Well, and I'm, I'm going to see, I cut both ways on this one because I have been that fan that hasn't been able to meet my heroes. And so if I had a few bucks and I can go meet that guy or, or that band, you know, why not? Where, where I find the practice to be sort of abhorrent is when they don't really give you what they sell. Uh, I took my daughter to a meet and greet and it said, you know, you get a picture with the band and all this and all that. And when it turns out is you had, my daughter had to give her cell phone to somebody who stood there and took a picture. And I, I tell you, you cannot tell if it's an actual picture or just a smudge. And I'm like, now, my daughter didn't have to pay for it, but it was 750 bucks. And I'm just thinking, if she had Ooh. paid 750 for this, <laughs> and she walks out of there with a smudge, I mean, give me a break. So if you're going to do it and charge that kind of money, you're going to need to have a professional photographer there and make sure you get it right. You know, and there's another band, one of the classic heritage acts. They did the same thing. My buddy got in there and there's a picture of him with his eyes closed and his face looking really weird. And I'm again, really? Like if you're going to pay, and I think that one was like 1200 that he paid for. And I'm like, wow, for 1200 bucks, they should at least take three pictures and then send you the best one. So if you're going to do it, make the effort to have a professional photographer and and then there's, uh, I'll finish with this one. There's another one where you spend that money, you get a ticket in the first 10 rows, you get a little gift bag, which is great, but the band doesn't come out at all to meet you. And it's like, well, that's not really a VIP experience. That's just, I paid for a 10th row seat. So It's a premium thing, yeah. Yeah, so... <laughs> I tell you, Mitch, all of this stuff, it's harder and it's hard enough and especially now with a lot of these as heritage or legacy acts, you know, whatever you want to call them, it's hard enough to just, just put on a good show, you know, and, and just have the band sound great and the sound and the lights be great. They're tacking all this other stuff on that it just, 
we're getting further and further away from the honesty and from what this is supposed to be about that, that momentary magic between the band and the listener that'll never get created again. It's not on a CD. It's just that energy of the moment. And, and I understand that the business is getting really tight and people are starting to really get frustrated with how they generate the revenue. But I just don't believe that this is the way to go. It just all the way down the line is wrought with problems. Um, it, it just, you have so many potentials to, to upset your fan, the expectation levels, you know, all of these things and it's all wrapped up in there. There's gotta be a better way. I've just always felt that if you, if you take the time either from the stage, if you don't have the energy or the, the ability to get out and touch as many of these fans, because like I said, a lot of this stuff is like on a mid level sort of a line. You know, bands like Aerosmith and Kiss and Tom Petty, you know, those are, these are huge businesses with, with traveling teams of people that do lights and sound and hospitality and everything else. And so that, that's become sort of a, a branded giant thing. And, and, and I can understand them doing an upsell, uh, you know, upsell package or whatever, because that's, that's been their business for years. But I'm talking about these bands that are that are going into theaters and clubs that there's they don't have the wherewithal or the resources to really give. Um, it changes day to day. You know, each place has got a different set of environments. Is there a room to do it? Does the band have time to do it? And when it's hard enough to get people to come out to these shows and put on a great experience for them. But even the price that it is now, the drives that they have to go through or what they have to do to, to make the time in their in their day. And then these same people are whining that the music business is dying. Well, the way to, to, to not have a die is to not figure out how to get another 7500 500 bucks out of people. The focus has got to be somewhere else to regain that revenue. And you, it shouldn't be about a price to get a little closer access. If somebody should catch me as I'm getting out of the vehicle or if I'm going down to the bathroom and somebody stops, I don't want to feel uncomfortable that I just charged somebody 150 bucks to hang out with me for 15 minutes. And this guy just bumped into me when I was going to take a leak in the bathroom. And I really shouldn't treat this guy this way because I just charged that guy that. I mean, come on, this is getting to be out of control. Well, yeah, you know, it's a funny point that you mentioned that because I've seen that backstage where um, an artist will refuse to say, not say hello, but will refuse to sign something outside of the boundaries of the meet and greet where, you know, you'll, you'll run into them at the van or at the back of the venue and they'll say, oh, no, 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 I have to wait for the meet and greet for that. And it's like... Uh, that that sort of kill <laughs> that sort of kills the spirit of rock and roll, but you know, let's, yes, let's, it, but, does. it really does. But the, the bottom line is, for me at least, I'm not against them in the sense that I I know that if you're not part of the machine, you're not a promoter, you're not of this, that in, the chance to meet, you know, like you said, a Tom Petty or an Aerosmith is exceptionally rare or exceptionally difficult. And if you have a few extra bucks, or you want to work, you know, a few extra hours at work to pick up the money for it, so you get that that chance to shake, you know, Steven Tyler's hand, then, you know, why not? I'm just saying that if you're going to be Steven Tyler and you're going to charge that kind of money, just make sure you that better. the picture is right and that, you know, don't... Yeah, and make sure you got a smile on your face and, you, and you're really grateful that somebody is willing to do that. 
you know, yeah. that, that's the thing. That's yeah. my point, too. And, yeah. and on the other side, when, when I started talking to these bands, um, I was talking to Jason with Saigon Kick and some of these other guys who they're really sensitive to this. And I really hit a button when I just blanketly said, yeah, stop doing this. You're kind of exploiting the fans. And, and I really that wasn't my intention was to just stir up a bunch of crap about this. There are guys that do spend a lot of time, a lot of energy and put somebody specifically in charge of this. And they do make sure that it has an added value and it is a benefit to the fan and the band. So for those people that do it with that kind of energy and really do a quality control to make sure it is a quality experience that has a value. Um, I have, I have definitely have a respect for them. I never thought that would, be, you know, you have, you have a drum tech and a guitar tech. Now you've got a VIP tech, you know, so it's, it's, it's interesting sign of the time, so to speak, but there are people that do it. And I think that there is for some people when they do it right and experience for fans, they would never get that for them and they're willing to part with the money and so be it. But the, the I would say the majority of the ones that I'm seeing you're doing it out of economic desperation more so than really putting the same attention they would put into cultivating their show or their set or their musical experience for the fan. And that was kind of my point ultimately at the end of this is that has to be done or this is going to be a detriment way more so than a benefit for the artist or for the fan. Yeah, no, I fully agree. And uh, by the way, I just, uh, I, I've never been to an Aerosmith meet and greet. That was just an example I was using. So I, I don't want anybody to think yeah, I was yeah, bashing exactly. Steve just, and Tyler just, or anything. Yeah. Um, a giant name in here. And right. <laughs> yeah. Just, right. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure that Aerosmith, but you know, most of the larger arena acts do it right. There are some where it, it is a little suspect where they just really run you in like cattle and stuff and, and they run you out and, and the picture comes out smudged, and and you're just like, oh God, for for, for you know, but it is it is a, a a a to me, I think it is a value added uh, to any concert. And if you can, if you're a fan that can afford it, uh, you know, good for you, and 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 certainly do them because it it does help sort of keep rock and roll around. Anything that keeps the economics flowing in rock to me is is a good thing because everybody talks about rock is dead and blah blah blah, and there's no music and money in the music business. Well, there is. It's just not like in 1975 where you put a song on AM radio and waited for royalties to come in. It's, we're, it's not that. And so, you know, good for bands that can monetize whatever they can monetize. Yeah, and, and, and good for the bands that take, take, the, take the responsibility and to take that interaction seriously. Well, yeah, that's the, the thought into those. I, I want to yeah. underline that word. Take it seriously you know don't yeah if a fan has paid you a thousand bucks and the signature is smudged or the photograph hasn't come out reach out to them and make sure that they get what they paid for and that's it and other than that you know uh good for you for doing it and uh, good for the fans yeah. who can who, who want to take uh you know take it on ron a great pleasure always uh fun to talk to you hopefully we will see you up in Canada on tour and, and throughout the States. And, yes. Um, Make up for our last immigration indiscretion. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. And uh, on that, I will be right back with Josh Todd of Buck Cherry. Thank you, Ron. Thank you, Mitch. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. Mitch LaFond. Big thank you to uh, Ron Young of Little Caesar for that great discussion about the VIP experience. Now, let us move over to our first interview. 
It is from Buck Cherry, the one and only Josh Todd. We talk about his new band, Josh Todd and the Conflict, and their upcoming album, Year of the Tiger. And, of course, we get into what happened with Buck Cherry because there has been a wholesale change in the lineup. Only two guys uh, remain and are moving forward under the uh, brand of Buck Cherry. So we talk about that. We talk about Year of the Tiger, the new album, all kinds of great stuff. Uh, without further ado, a great showman, and I do recommend that you go catch any show that he's a part of, the one, the only, Josh Todd. We are speaking to Josh Todd of Josh Todd and the Conflict and also uh, Buck Cherry. Uh, Josh, great pleasure to uh, to speak with you. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, um, just chilling here at home, getting ready for the uh, the assault here coming up. Yeah, so... For the so, new record that's... Uh, I got a new record dropping uh, September 15th, Josh Todd and the Conflict on Century Media. We just released the first uh, uh, single to... Um, just the internet, you know, viral performance video, Year of the Tiger, and it's doing really well. Yeah, so so let's talk to me about this Year of the Tiger uh, album. Um, the last sort of solo album was You Made Me Back in about 2003, 2004. Is this a solo hmm. album, or is this a new band? No, it's a new band, and, uh, you know, I started with Stevie D about Sherry. He and I go way back. We were... Uh, we were longtime friends before he ever was in a band with me. And um, we were out on the road with Buck Cherry. And I just, I, I really wanted to start making new music. And and we got together and we made, a, we, we put some beats together and made a Spray Gun War EP, which was a lot of fun. We did that all on the road, all on a laptop. And after that, we were like, when we got home, I was like, I want this, I want this to be rock, you know? And so we started working really hard about, uh, November last year, October, November last year, um, just started writing a lot of songs and eventually got the record together and recorded it with Eric Kretz and Stevie co-produced it with him, Eric Kretz from STP and, uh, Ryan Williams engineered it and we did it at Eric's house and it just came out amazing. Like people are going to really love this record. Yeah, I mean, in fact, I saw the video for Year of the Tiger, and, and as a fan of Buck Cherries, I thought, wow, this is this is kick-ass stuff. Um, in in terms of uh, music, though, is it sort of an offshoot of what Buck Cherry does? Is it completely different? Where do you sort of see it going musically? You know, are you going to limit yourself to what you do, or is it sort of, I've got this freedom to do whatever with this band? No, Josh Todd and the Conflict is, uh, I, I went back to my roots. You know, I grew up on on punk rock music in orange county california that's my roots all my records all my foundation were independent records so um you know that's what i love you know and i was always in a four-piece band up until i got in buck cherry and it was still a four-piece band until after our first record until we got our record deal you know then we added another guitar player but um like so i wanted to kind of go back to what it was all about um i've always been on the rock side of things, more interested in heavier, um, music, you know, Josh Todd and the conflict is heavier. Um, it's heavy melodic. I mean, we're down, we're tuned down to C and it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. And the live show is great. We got Greg cash on the bass. He, um, he's an amazing bass player. And we got Sean Winchester on the drums. He played with, uh, Everclear and Bow Wow Wow and a lot of old school punk rock bands as well. He's a really good drummer. It's been a great effort, you know, and, and the whole the whole plan was to be able to give Buck Cherry a break 
and go work this record and this band for a while and build this new situation and then go back to Buck Cherry and do that for a while, you know, and kind of um, have these two pots to tend to um, so I don't over tour one situation, you know, that was a, that was an issue with Buck Cherry. Yeah, yeah. So, 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 talk to me about what's going on currently with Buck Cherry. You've brought in some new members, um, which I guess. Yeah. Are, uh, what happened there in terms of change? You know, why not just sort of <laughs> take it over and become the conflict? Then why? Why? Um, you know what happened with Buck Cherry? Where did Keith go? Basically. You know, Buck Cherry. It was. It's kind of been like. The last three years, Buck Cherry is just was just um, changing. It just wasn't what it was. There was no collective um, thought. There wasn't, you know, it just wasn't a band for a while. So, um, and we were we were touring a lot, and I think just people had other uh, things that they wanted to do, you know. So, um, I was always you know, I was kind of blindsided by the whole thing, honestly. So, um, I just kind of made my adjustments. All I knew is that I wanted to make new music and, and I was really fired up about, uh, making a new record. And so, um, that's what I started doing. And then it all kind of unraveled and it wasn't like a big, it all happened in January. So people didn't know about it till later. And we got the new guys, which is Kevin Rankin on the guitar and I just carried Sean Winchester over on the drums because he's just so good. And I'm such a rhythmic singer. Um, having a drummer that I really like is important to me. And I didn't want to keep uh, auditioning guys and, and teaching guys new music. It was starting to become just crazy, you know, for me because I was dealing with two bands. So um, I got Sean in there to play drums and he's just doing a great job. And the band, the band is the best it's been in a long time it's just we're having so much fun and and we're a gang and kelly and me is still playing bass and you know stevie's playing guitar and and we're having a great time and eventually we'll make a new record and that'll be uh that'll be something that i'll be tending to 100 percent again but right now my focus is on the conflict and buck cherry's just doing like fly dates yeah, and now as we speak today, back in 1999, uh, Buck Cherry was number one on Billboard's mainstream rock uh, songs with "Lit Up." Um, take me back to that moment in '99 when "Lit Up" hits number one on the mainstream rock charts on Billboard, and the band is breaking out. Uh, how was that for you? Because it was difficult back in the '90s to sort of get any kind of traction. Rock seems to have was sort of dropping off the face of the earth, and then here you mm-hmm. come with "Lit Up." And how does that change things for you? Right, you know, like it's so weird. My whole career since I've been doing this, uh, we've been kind of the black sheep of rock and roll. You know, it's like when we came out at that time, it was all uh, a lot of rap rock bands were big at that time. You know, like Limp Bizkit and those type of bands, and and people were like, "How how are you going to put out a rock record?" And we just put out a rock record and lit up. Started happening when we were in Europe. We were in Europe touring with uh, Kiss and it was, wow. just, it was the first time we'd ever ever been over there and we didn't know that our song was taken off on the radio here in the States so when we got back I remember we got off the plane and we had a show in Jersey right we'd never played in Jersey and my tour manager says yeah the show sold out tonight I go what 
and we never even played here. And he's like, I know the, you know, the rat and, and, or whatever, whatever station it was at the time was playing <clears throat> lit up and, and uh, the place is packed. And I'm like, wow. And, and I had never even heard my song on the radio. And then we were driving in the van shortly after that, we did that show and that show was nuts. I mean, people were like, girls are like dancing on the bar tables and you know, people were so drunk and crazy. It was nuts. And, and then shortly after that, we were driving in the van like, you know, 12 at night and lit up came on the radio and it was just like, we were all like, you could hear a pin drop in the van because we all stopped talking and, and just listen. It was like the coolest moment ever, you know? Yeah, it must have been. And, and to hit number one on, on any billboard chart is something to celebrate. So, so when you're done today, I guess you can go celebrate the, uh, that importance. Now, um, after Time Bomb, the band took a bit of a break. You went off with uh, Keith and you, you worked for, I guess you want to call it the project that, that sort of eventually evolved into Velvet Revolver. Um, yeah. Talk to me about that project and, and what it was like to be in a room with Slash, who, who by himself is iconic, and of course, uh, Duff. You know, it was a lot of fun. I mean, it, it kind of, that whole thing started from a show. We did a, we did a show for Randy Castillo benefit in Los Angeles. And, you know, uh, we're like, let's do this show. And we did some GNR songs, Buck Cherry and, and like an Aerosmith song. And even Steven Tyler came up and sang Mama Can. And it was a lot of fun. And it was like, at that time, Keith and I were just sitting there making demos. It was just he and I doing the whole thing, you know? Um, he was, he was writing all the music. I was writing all the lyrics and melodies. And then we were like paying a guy, a drummer to come in and lay drum tracks. And we were just making demos for the third Buck Cherry record because two of the band members had quit or three of the band members had quit. So um, we were auditioning guys and we couldn't find guys. Everybody thought we had all this money to pay them and we didn't. And, and so we were just kind of sitting there. We hadn't been dropped from our label and we were making new music and flash called up and said, Hey, let's do this. Let's do the show. And, we did this show and it was like, wow, this is, this is like Buck Cherry with amazing musicians, right? <laughs> so um, we did the show. We had a lot of fun. And then uh, Keith and I were talking. We we're like, it, was, it just felt good to be in a band again, a band situation. And maybe we should call these guys and see what, see what was going on. And they were thinking the same thing. And we actually became a band for like four weeks, six weeks. We were writing songs. We were taking manage, management meetings and... And then all of a sudden, Slash came in one day and abruptly just pulled the plug. Wow, that's that, that's a pity. I, just just on, on the fan perspective, to to imagine what you guys would have done together uh, just sends chills down my spine. Now, of course, after that, then there's the 15 album, and that seems mm-hmm. to be the one that changes everything. Now, you you bring in new band members, and you have sort of a new changed bucket. everything. Changed everything. Um, mm-hmm. Let's look back at that album because that that's the one for me especially where you went from just being this band that had a new song, you know, on, you know, the Time Bomb album, and to being like, oh, okay, they're, they're major league. They're at that next level. Um, what was it like working on that album and then also having to bring in, because we're sort of in a similar situation now where you're going to have to rebuild from the ground up. Um, what was that like in terms of pressure, in terms of songwriting, in terms of expectations? Did you think it was going to be this massive success that it became? 
I want to tell everybody who's listening to this that that whole situation, there were so many unknowns. It was complete blind faith because everything and every, everywhere we turned was saying, this is going to fail. So, and we just stayed the course, believed in ourselves, kept writing songs, you know, and, and this is what I'm talking about. Like, as far as like ambition is concerned, like, um, one of the, the biggest song on that record happened three years before it ever got on the record. So like, because Keith and I were ambitious and we went in and we, we wrote songs without a band, we just kept going and we didn't just stop and go, Oh, we don't have a band. Let's just pack up and, and quit. You know, we, we kept going, we kept writing songs and that's when we wrote crazy bitch, you know, and it was just sitting, sitting around for, the, all those years before it got on 15, you know? So it just goes to show you, you know, you gotta, you gotta just stay the course, keep focused on your outcome. And that's what we did. And then we got to so many levels of like weirdness and that, and I could go on and on. It's a long story, but like we, um, oh, got time. we, yeah, like we, we made the record and well, we made all the demos and no one would sign the record. Everybody said that rock is dead uh, we were has-beens. No one would sign the record in the United States. So we got a, we got a deal with Japan, uh, Universal Japan. They gave us a small amount of money, and we made the record in 15 days. That's why we called it 15. We tracked the whole record in 15 days because we had a very small budget. That's the, that's the truth. And then it's really a cool story because the, uh, our manager at the time said, we can't get a record deal. I'll start a label. And we'll put it out on my label. So he started 11.7 Music, which is now a pretty big independent label. And we were the first record that kicked off that label. And we had an upstreaming clause through Atlantic on that. And of course, as soon as Crazy Bitch started taking off, Atlantic you know, picked us up. But it was like such a weird... Uh, you know, such a weird layout for a record. You know, if you would have looked at it, you'd have been like, this is... There's no way this is going to work, you know? Like because uh, our, our manager was like, okay, we're going to release it in Japan first and then we're going we're gonna to come to the States and then we were like going to go with Next To You as the first single. We were about to make a video and that was back when MySpace was happening and Crazy Bitch was like at a million like listens on MySpace or something crazy, you know? Wow. And some radio station in the States made a clean version of it and started playing it on the radio and we're like, oh my God, this song's like, taking on a life of its own we got to jump on it so thank god we didn't we didn't go with next to you you know and we jumped on crazy bitch and you know and it just became a phenomenon and changed the course of this band and in our lives and and uh it's a really really cool story yeah and and, it, and it's such a great album and of course uh, you mentioned the japanese version of the cd which includes uh, the elvis costello cover pump it up which is probably one of the best covers i've ever heard i mean you you really Nailed it, um, Josh. Oh, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. You made me. Let, let me just get to the to the solo album from two thousand three. Um, yeah. I believe at the time I saw you on tour with Sebastian Bach, or you played a show up in mm-hmm. upstate New York with Sebastian. Um, there's a song on there called "Circles," one of the better songs you've you've ever done. Um, talk, oh, thanks. Yeah, that that song is great. Uh, hopefully, with uh, Josh Todd and the Conflict, you'll you'll pull it out and start playing it because that cannot just stay on vinyl tucked away in somebody's collection. <laughs> I just can't. Um, but 
talk to me about that album. That that album, you, you, uh, it seemed to be sort of be you know in between the Buck Cherry thing, and it seemed uh, focused in parts and lost in parts. And and you were saying some. Talk to me about putting that album together, and um, will there ever be another Josh Todd, Josh Todd solo album? No, I mean at that time I didn't ever want it to be that. I've, the band was called Shots Fired, and um, that that whole situation is just a really bad situation for me to talk about, and I can't really say much about it. But as far as making the record, I really enjoyed it, and I really enjoyed the guys I made the record with, the musicians, and we had a lot of fun and. The thing with me is, uh, you know, I I have to constantly create. And at that time, uh, you know, Slash abruptly pulled the plug on that thing. And Keith was like, going to carry on with it. And I was like, okay. And I just went off and found some young kids to make a record with. And I just wanted to continue writing songs and being creative and being the singer that I am. So... Um, that's how that record came about. And I had a lot of fun doing it and, um, it just became a weird situation business wise. And so that's the only, that's the only thing that's, uh, sour about that whole situation. But, um, yeah, it was fun making it. Yeah, hopefully. And hopefully you'll, you'll pull out that song circles. Now, um, talk to me about, you know, the guardian in England ran an article recently about brand versus band and how bands like foreigner and guns and roses and all that can change members and go on. Um, how important is it for you to sort of hold on to the buck cherry name and what does it represent in terms of uh, making your music available in, in, in what you need to say? Um, you know, why not just be, you know, the conflict or just Josh or talk to me about the importance of having that brand name and that brand association. Well, listen, Buck Cherry is a huge part of my life. It's a big part of my career. Uh, all those words and all those melodies came, came out of my head. So I'm very passionate about it. I love it. And it's something that I will always tend to and put a lot of effort and love into, you know, and that's what's going to happen till you know, I'm done with this game, you know, so that's that. I also have other, you know, I have other sides of me that I want to express and I like being diversified. This is, this is the day and age of being diversified, especially in rock music. You can't just do one thing anymore. So, um, and you know, the, the average music listener is not just listening to one thing. The guy, the kid that's listening to crazy bitch or whatever, is also listening to Drake. He's also, you know, listening to Bruno Mars. It's it's just a different situation now, you know. So, um, as far as like, I love rock music, so um, that's why I wanted to create the conflict, something heavier and more along the lines of that other side of me that I, that I really like to express. And when you when everybody hears the record, it's going to be more clear for everyone and a lot of fun and when they see the live show it's it's going to take on a life of its own right now it's just kind of in limbo and the only thing people have heard is tiger so but eventually it'll all become you know more clear and a lot of fun for everyone yeah i'm looking forward to the album uh and then uh we'll, we'll talk about one other thing that you do outside of music you do the uh, the racing um talk to me about your interest yeah. in racing because the other guy i know who does that is is of course steven piercy who does his top fuel racing um, talk to me about yeah. the racing and how you got into that. You know, we played the infield of the NASCAR uh, Daytona 400, uh, and I'd never been to a race. You know, I, I I grew up in Southern California, and when I was a kid, it was surfing and skateboarding and 
and that's what I was into before I got into music. So I didn't even know that there was like this whole subculture of of karting, go karting around the world and racing. And um, so when I went to the Daytona 400, um, I just kind of was like, wow, this is amazing. And then I started kind of getting into all the aspects of the race, the pitting, the you know, the tuning of the cars, and and all all of it. And I just thought it was really uh, cool. And I like to go fast. I like speed. So. Um, I caught home and my brother, my brother-in-law and I would, we would go out to these indoor tracks. And in fact, in Montreal, I went to an indoor track there and yep. raced all night one time, but, uh, uh, we would go to these indoor tracks and just, and just drive go-karts. And we, just, we were having just a blast and we just to see how fast we could get. And, and then this kid goes, Hey, if you want to go faster, you know, there's all these outdoor tracks. And I go, what? I had no idea like there was this whole like this is where racing begins for every young person that wants to become a race car driver. They start in go-karts on outdoor tracks around the world. And and so I went out to this track over at Auto Club Speedway out in, um, here in California by my, you know, an hour from my house. And, and that's when I got hooked. And I just, I drove a really fast go-kart for the first time. And then I started racing and then I started learning about tuning on them because I saw that movie um, on uh, Nicky Lauda's life. Uh, yeah. What Nicky. was that movie called? Yeah. Uh, oh, I have Rush. Not. I saw that movie. Right. I saw that movie Rush and I thought Nicky Lauda was like such a outlaw. He was such a badass and he took so many risks and he knew every aspect about his car and it really made him like, you know, this really special driver because he got into setting up his car and so at that time I got obsessed with like, I want to know everything about my go-karts. So I got a book on tuning go-karts and then I just started tearing my go-kart apart and putting it back together and, and just learning how every different aspect of changing the setup can make you go faster. It can affect the handling. And so I got in that hole. And to this day, like I'll like, I'm pretty ambitious with it. I'll call up a friend and if I'm not even racing, I want to go out there and just, wrench on somebody's go-kart and have fun and, and people look at me like why are you out here wrenching on my go-kart you're <laughs> you should be like on stage and i'm like nah you know it's it's fun for me you know because i like to learn stuff that's new especially outside of music you know yeah absolutely and uh josh a great pleasure now uh, i just want to say i grew up on you know kiss and cheap trick and aerosmith and stuff but in the last 20 years you have become one of my absolute favorite front man i mean i don't care what day of what day of the year it is you go to a josh todd so or buck chair whatever and you're there you just bring that audience to such a peak level it is unbelievable so um you know congratulations on that thank you yeah it's it thank you i really appreciate that yeah there's just something about what you do in fact i mean i'm gonna ask sort of a silly question but is there a front man that you sort of grew up looking up to saying i gotta be like him i want to be him like he's he's my guy you know i'm a strange i'm a strange guy in that way you know um i I had a very strange childhood you know so uh that the first the first guys i really started getting into i just like i like guys that um you know like i was telling you i listen to a lot of independent records and on these independent records like i listen to bands like you know black flag and seven seconds and uh you know snfu and this this band called blast and minor threat was like one of the biggest influences like ian mckay or mckay yep. however you want to pronounce it he was like one of the first front men i was like wow this guy is 
incredible, you know, and, and, uh, you know, and then I got into the Ramones and then it wasn't until I was like 17 that I heard like my first major label rock record. And it was like Led Zeppelin and Metallica and stuff like that. And, and I, I liked the honesty of those punk rock records because these were bands that were making songs and they were hooky songs, but they were songs lyrically with that were, um, had no rules. There was no label telling them they couldn't say certain things. So they were speaking from the heart. They were talking about things that were going on with them on the inside, you know, and being very honest with it. And that touched me in a way when I was a kid, cause I was going through a lot. You know, I, I remember I would yeah. take those records home and I would sit in my bedroom and I would, I would like listen to them from top to bottom and read the lyrics. And I was really into the, the lyric writing and, and then I figured out I had a knack for it and, um, and the rest is kind of history. But, you know, I was also in a dirty comedians at the time. Uh, George Carlin was a big influence for me. Um, He's I remember like, I remember, uh, going down in the basement with my cousin and we would watch George Carlin videos like for hours. And I just thought this guy is incredible. Like, cause he wrote all that stuff and, he memorized all that stuff and he delivered it in such a way and it was so clever. And I was like, wow, this is like, this dude is amazing. You know? So I was really into him as well. And so all those things like kind of shaped the artist that I was, you know, and it's kind of weird, but um, that's, that's how it all started. Yeah, and George is wonderful. Of course, uh, year of the tiger by uh, Josh Todd and the conflict out September 15th on century media. Uh, Josh, always a pleasure. Right. Uh, looking forward to doing another yes. one of these, hopefully in the fall when the album comes out. Thanks so much. You're going to love it. And I, and everybody go pre-order the record right now on iTunes. Agreed. Thank you, sir. All right, buddy. Have a good one. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. Rock Talk. Mitch here. Are you in the market for a new car and want to see what others have paid? Well, in order to feel comfortable that you are getting a fair price, you need pricing contacts information that empowers you to feel confident with true car you will see what other people in your local market paid for the car you want from there you can connect with a local true car certified dealer and enjoy a more confident car buying experience using true car you can easily find the car you want true car will show you what other people in your area paid for the car you want now you know what a fair price is, you can feel confident. Once you register, you'll see real pricing on actual inventory. This is competitive pricing offered to you only by True Car Certified Dealers for an actual vehicle on their lawn. It's pricing you'll see before going to a dealership so you can feel confident when you show up. With True Car, you can connect with a local certified dealer of your choosing so you can enjoy a quick easy buying experience true car customers are more likely to enjoy a faster buying process when they connect with true car certified dealers true car users save an average of three thousand dollars off msrp when you're ready to buy visit true car to enjoy a more confident car buying experience some features not available in all states. 
Hey, have you heard? Podcast One has a whole bunch of awesome new shows filled with big names that are waiting for you on our brand new amazing app. This one's a game changer. There's Norman Lear talking to Amy Poehler, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, and Charles Barkley. Geffen Playhouse Unscripted with Brian Cranston, Josh Gad, and soon Neil Patrick Harris. Nice. OC Real Housewife, Heather Dubrow's World, Lady Gang's Three Mimosa Podcast with Leah Michelle, Nelly Furtado, L. King, and more. Plus every episode of The Adam Carolla Show, Dan Patrick, and Rich Eisen. And if you like what happens in the ring, we've got Steve Austin, Chris Jericho, Chael Sonnen, and a whole bunch more. So download our one of a kind new app and see for yourself. Go to the App Store, Google Play, or download it now at podcastone.com. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Welcome back to this very special episode of Pure Rock and Roll. A big thank you to Josh Todd of Buck Cherry up front. And now let's complete this episode with two great ones. First and foremost from Hanoi Rocks, Michael Monroe. He has got a new greatest hits album simply called The Best. We talk about his his relationship with the guys in Guns N' Roses, Hanoi Rocks, what he's been doing, all kinds of great stuff there. And then on the other side of that, stick around for Tuck from the band Biters. They have a new album called The Future Ain't What It Used To Be. It is absolutely one of the best albums you will hear in 2017. I have spoken about them at length, tweeted about them very, very often. And, of course, do check out my Twitter, at Mitch Lafon. Um, but, you know, listen, new bands don't often get a spotlight or get a lot of uh, press. And so I figured I'll, I'll change that and give uh, Tuck and the Biters their due because they are that good and they should be the next big thing. Uh, musically, they're certainly there right now, but, uh, you know, it is what it is, and uh, I wish uh, Tuck and the Biters all the best. You must go out and get their two albums, The Future Ain't What It Used to Be, the new one, and the previous one from 2015, Electric Blood. But uh, without further ado, let's head over to Europe for this interview and uh, talk with Michael Monroe. Absolutely a fantastic career over the last uh, 30 years. Some of the most timeless rock and roll you will ever hear comes from Michael Monroe. And uh, he's put it all together in a wonderful collection called The Best. Do check that out. But first, check out this interview with the one, the only, singer Michael Monroe. Speaking with singer Michael Monroe, the new album, a greatest hits compilation called The Best, is out now, available now. Michael, a pleasure uh, to speak with you. Same here, man. Good to talk to you too. Been yeah. a while. Yeah, it's been it's been in a got at least uh, five years, if not more. Um, so let's yeah. get let's get into this compilation here because it sort of looks back at thirty years of you being a solo artist. Uh, did you choose these songs, or did the record company come to you and say, "This is what we're picking"? I chose this myself. I put this whole thing together all by myself, of course, uh, naturally, and. Uh, made the choices and uh, did the artwork with Rich Jones, my guitar player, my other guitar player, who has been doing the artwork for the last few albums, Horns and Halos, Blackout States, and also we put it together real quickly, but I, I did put the song track listing together based on what I thought were the most significant songs in the albums uh, and what have been the singles and videos also and what, what, you know, what fans would expect too. But there's some rarities as well, uh, and the four completely pre unreleased, previously unreleased tracks, the new single "One Foot Out of the Grave," and two outtakes, two two songs that were outtakes from the last album, uh, 
from Blackout Stage Sessions, A Fistful of Dynamite in Simple Town, and uh, the Magic Carpet Ride, the Steppenwolf cover with the, with Slash that uh, was never released before either. There was the, another version of the same song that was a different arrangement that was on the Coneheads movie soundtrack, but this one, this version was, uh, you know, I probably had the only copy of it throughout the years since 1993 and uh, had it on an audio cassette and... Uh, Slash is uh, such a sweet guy and has the biggest heart in rock and roll. He's such a such a cool guy that he uh, he uh, told me that I can use it. You know, no problem. Uh, that, uh, so uh, that's great to have him also on this record because he's an important person in my my life and my career, my solo career especially. He's been a great friend throughout the years and one of the greatest guitarists of all time and still doing it, playing the right kind of stuff and. Uh, Really, uh, so it's good to have him there. And Steve Bader's "It's a Lie," that ballad or the slow song, that the beautiful song that Jimmy Zero from the Dead Boys guitar player wrote back in the day. Uh, the duet with me and Steve Bader's doing that song is a magical version, which was not on the "Nights Are So Long" album. The "Nights Are So Long" album had me doing that song by myself because Steve didn't make it to the studio he was supposed to produce that album and he never made it there so i uh did it myself and that version wasn't as cool as this one so i had to have that included here but i put this together based on that what, what like i said and because of the time limit it was going to be like two songs per album pretty much of the old stuff except for the demolition 23 album which has not been out it's been out of print for almost 20 years came out in 1994, and uh, that's uh, still one of the better albums. I think I think Demolition 23 and Not Faking It are probably two of the strongest albums from my from the old stuff. Uh, but Demolition 23, especially, I had to have I, I wanted to have four songs over that uh, on the compilation because it hasn't been available. And also, Dead Time Stories is one song that's uh, a tribute to Steve Bader's and. I thought that was uh, important to have there because Steve was such an important person also in my life and my career and really helped me out when Hanoi Rocks broke up and we were, I had no friends except for Steve actually at the time in London and therefore, you know, I wanted to have that song and You Crucified Me is also a really special song over that album. Nothing's All Right, Hammers with Palais, those are... Those are a no-brainer, you know. They those they were supposed to be there, but from the old albums, other other than that, the old albums have there's like two songs per album, and uh, that's CD one. On CD two, uh, there's the last three albums I've done are presented uh, with three songs of each of those albums, uh, and and the bonus tracks are on the, on that CD too. But uh, I thought that was also appropriate because most people think, and I agree that. The last three albums I've done is some of the best work of my career. So, uh, yeah, it was, I, I, I would agree with yeah. that as well, actually. And uh, you've also got a cover of the Finnish band, the Hurricanes, which uh, yes, yes, you know the Hurricanes. Yeah, of course. Uh, cool. Man, I mean, was, they, yeah. they've been around since the since the seventies. It, it, it's amazing that some bands really just have sort of regional success and and it hasn't really translated to North America. But um, just quickly mention the the Hurricanes. Hurricanes, I should say, and, yeah, with and a G. yeah, with a G. But you know, I'm so used to saying hurricane, but hurricanes, it 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 trips, <laughs> it, it trips you up. But um, yeah, what was it that was special about that band? Because they, they've had a 40 year career, right? Yeah, well, there was that album. 
Roadrunner. That was the album in nineteen. It came out in seventy four, I think. Yeah, seventy four, and that had the the lineup of the band with the uh, with the guitar player. Uh, I mean, the three piece band with Remo, the Hurricane, the the is the singer and the drummer. Uh, they had the guitar player Albert Albert Yervinen, who was phenomenal. I mean, he's one of the best guitar players in the world of all time, really. You know, he really was special in that. I mean, he's he's dead now, and so is the bass player who was in that lineup too. But that was the best lineup, and that album, uh, Roadrunner, was there's something magical and something special about that record. The sound and the whole the whole you know the guitar playing on that album is just outstanding. Some some killer rock and roll guitar there, and Albert was never really. I mean, he he was asked to join Dave Edmonds and Nick Lowe. Uh, I think asked him to join their join them and. Wilco Johnson. When Wilco Johnson left uh, left Doctor Feelgood, you know that band. Yep. And Doctor Feelgood. When 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 Wilco Johnson left that band, they asked Albert to replace him to replace him. But Albert never wanted to leave. He didn't leave Finland. You know, he, they were, it's a Finnish mentality, being too humble and you know, I, I don't even speak the language. Ah, never mind. And you know, he just want to sit in a bar and drink some beer and, and wine and moan. And you know, and Finnish Finnish people are very a bit too humble sometimes. But he was such a great guitar player, and that that record especially it had the sound of it. The whole album, the Hurricanes Roadrunner. Oh, well, it's classic, and Get On is like a national anthem for in rock in Finland. Everybody knows that song, but for some reason it was it came out uh, only in Japan. That this version came out in Japan as a bonus track for the Horse and Halos album, <laughs> and we had done it. I mean, we did it live in the studio, one take, and it's as it was, and it was crazy that it never came out in Finland. So. That was also one of the reasons I wanted to include it in, on this record. And yeah. actually, Remo and the Hurricanes, I mean, Remo, the drummer and singer, has been has been around. I mean, Albert left the band after the uh, Roadrunner album, but then he rejoined in like 81, I think 1981 uh, or 80. Uh, they had an album, was it, it was called 1018 or something? Uh, 1080. Which had a, 1080. 1080. Yeah. That's what it was. Oh, right, right, right. Of course it was, 1080, right. So they had, that, that's that when Albert rejoined the band, and uh, they still made some good stuff, but then he left again, and there's been uh, different players in there, and, you know, they never never been as, uh, you know, quite the same uh, as, as uh, you know, as it was with Albert. But right. uh, Remo, uh, the Hurricanes, there's a new album that he probably, probably will be the last one. Uh, I mean, uh, Remo asked me to play some... Uh, harmonica on uh on i played some harmonica on the new album called electric play that was just released about uh, 2016 yes yes so that was uh very well very good you're you know all this stuff this is great i do my research yeah Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, brilliant yeah so i'm on that record and i sing on one song i sing even on that song catch me it was a great honor to be featuring on uh hurricanes record so and we've done some. I was at the record release party, playing it live, and uh, with the New Year's Eve, uh, the Finland hundred year celebration. Um, we uh, we did a little medley of uh, you know classic Hurricane stuff, and uh, plus the new song "Catch Me" with Remo. And you know, I respect that guy so much. I uh, I'm glad to be part of this uh, kind of like that legacy know. of that band from Finland. Now, now, speaking of research and and going back and all that, uh, thirty years ago, nights are so long. Uh, is released your first solo album uh, talk to me about 
going into the process and, and doing a solo album? Because you, you had been in Hanoi Rocks, you had had success. Then, of course, we all know about the, the events that happened with Razzle. Um, was it a difficult transition to sort of all of a sudden be alone? Or was it something that you were excited about? Like, all right, now I get to do my music my way. I never planned to be a solo artist until okay. I had to be. And right. that when losing Hanoi Rocks was, you know, first of all, losing your best friend, it was a devastating blow. And not only the Razzle died, uh, it was also Sammy Alpha left the band. So that's why we couldn't keep it together, Hanoi Rocks. But me, by myself, uh, my first uh, priority was to make sure that Hanoi Rocks' reputation was maintained. It's the integrity of the band, I wanted to make sure that... Uh, you know, put the band to to bed. Uh, you know, with its integrity intact, and not ha- not continuing that because it would have would have become a you know parody of itself possibly. Or the two guys that were going to come into the band were wrong, and it would have been. I just wanted to make sure that Hanoi Rock, the name of Hanoi Rocks, will be respected in in the future, and people will know the band as it was ori- the original band. You know, because. And I Rocks really died with Razzle. But um, uh, Steve Bader's was the only friend I really had at the time, and he encouraged me to write the songs and start writing again. Because I stopped writing. I kind of gave up on writing when Andy always said, in the Hanoi years, he always said, you know, he had a better one. And yeah, he had some good ideas, fine. But it wasn't really as much me as as it turned out I was I, when I started writing stuff. I really came onto my own as a songwriter during my solo years. So at first it was just, you know, I... Uh, Started out doing well. We did that demo of "It's Alive" with me and Steve singing as a duet. That was a Jimmy Zero song, and uh, we went into the studio and you know recorded stuff. And then I sat down with Steve, and uh, he said, "Sure, you can write. You know, uh, let's write something." And but Dead Time Stories, I even had the chords for the for that song back then, and which I finished when after, after Steve died, I wrote the wrote that uh, finished writing that and had about fifteen of Steve's song titles in within the lyrics. As a as an homage to him, but I you know really and they're not faking it album. That's when I just you know and little, little Steven was another important person who always supported when when I got to know him and I moved to New York because of the Sun City project. We went he Stephen came to London and uh, I was already a big fan of his Voice of America album and and Stephen me and little Stephen got together and Steve turned Stephen onto uh, Hanoi Rock. Stephen had never seen or heard of Hanoi and. He showed him a video of Love of Broken Dreams, and Stephen was totally excited. He says, wow, what is this band? Where, where are you guys now? What are you doing? And I said, told him the sad story. You know, we broke up and all. How Drummond died. And ever since then, Stephen was, uh, started supporting me as a, you know, as a friend and wanted to help my solo career. And uh, he had me and Steve sing backing vocals on the Sun City Project. And uh, we came to New York to shoot the video for it. And that's when I decided to move to New York and start all over. And, and eventually I started getting more and more comfortable with, you know, my own stuff was much more me, much closer to my heart. You know, simpler, more straight ahead, a bit more punky, and uh, I, had, I wanted to write songs, lyrics that meant something a bit more than just you know any story or just superficial. Not, but not that Hanoi was superficial, but it was not me as much as my solo thing is. And I never planned anything in my life, so stuff just happened. And I just dealt with the situation as it was, and. I just, you know, started being Michael Monroe solo. And uh, actually, in the end of the day, when I think of it, it was, you know, due to the circumstances, that's how I started started it. But in, a, in some ways, once I got it going, it was easier to work with uh, people that I chose to work with as opposed to having a, 
keeping the band together, you know, with uh, people in there, with, you know, with me and Andy, right. especially in the later years in Hanoi, we weren't connecting that well. And it, and uh, it was not, it was kind of a challenge always. And, uh, but still, it was, it was cool. It was working and it was happening. And, uh, you know, I never thought it would end, but... Uh, this time, everyone was, uh, I was, first of all, getting over the devastation of losing a best friend and, and Sammy leaving the band and the band breaking up that was my family and my life and, you know, everything was in shambles. So I just, you know, once I made sure that Hanoi's, Hanoi was, you know, put to rest and then the rest. Uh, I took a look around and I thought, okay, well, this is what I'll do next. Now, now you mentioned not faking it and I, and I want to get back to that in a couple of minutes because that is the first Michael Monroe album that I bought with my own money. Great wow. album. Yeah, great album, by the way. It, it also includes a personal friend of mine, uh, bassist John Reagan. Uh, I've been friends oh, with him. Yeah, brilliant. yeah. and you had uh, Anton Fig. But so, so there's that Kiss connection for me. But you were talking about, you know, as Hanoi Rocks was falling apart and you didn't want to start getting new members because you didn't want to just sort of save a band that wasn't really a band. Um, Talk to me a little bit about this live album, Rock and Roll Divorce, because that album is is interesting oh, in the sense that you can sort of hear the band breaking up on stage, if 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 that's a way to describe it. It's um, the miserable album. Oh, please, oh, let's get this over with quickly. <laughs> yeah, it was a terrible time, and that was. I I only agreed to do that tour in Poland uh, on two conditions: the band would. Uh, cease to exist after that and uh, or if the guys would continue they would not use the name Hanoi Rocks and no recording of that tour should be should come out in any shape or form whatsoever and sure enough uh, well they tried to keep the band going but I said you know without they realized before too long that it was it was uh, it was uh, not uh, not going to be not going to make sense without me there and and then, uh, of course, one day I walked into the office of the management office and I saw this hideous cover of, and this most this corniest, stupidest name for an album, Rock and Roll Divorce. I mean, come on, are you serious? Yeah. And they were putting that out and, you know, tape stolen by Andy McCoy and some they go, very funny, ha, ha, ha. So it was, uh, you know, it had a picture of the band with Sammy and Razzle and they don't even play on it. So I thought it was blasphemy. I was, was total, you know, that album should never have come out and... Right. I think it's a piece of shit, and I never listened to it since then. And I was miserable in that tour. I I reluctantly agreed to do it, and uh, that was just a really bad time. And uh, you know, the guys in the bass player and the drummer was they were just not right. And uh, if that was going to be Hanoi Rocks, then no way I was going to let that happen. You know, that would have ruined a good memory of a great band, and that's why. But that came out. You know, that was put, they put that out, and they. Whatever I'm sure they made some money out of it to keep Andy going, and uh, I had no, I, I had decided, you know, I knew that that was the end of the band, and uh, you know, they didn't keep their word, but and in, in the end of the day, anyways, I mean, they, yeah. They, so, so let's get on to, to better stuff then. Let's get back to not faking it. An absolute masterpiece of an album, and it just wonderfully put together. You've got Little Steven on there. You've got uh, Tommy Price, of course, from Scandal. Uh, Ian Hunter, Anton Fig. Uh, who played yeah. with Ace Fraley, uh, John Regan, who played with Peter Frampton and Ace Fraley. Yeah. Um, and, of course, in the video for uh, uh, Death, Jail, and Rock and Roll, uh, Axl Rose shows up. Just talk to me about that album, putting it together, that whole uh, moment, because it, 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 it sort of really 
captured who you were, or or am I wrong in saying that? Yeah, yeah, it did. It did. You're right. Uh, it was a time when uh, I had the Nights of So Long album I used as an international demo, to because that came out only in, in Scandinavia and Japan. So with the help of that record, I got signed to a major deal with uh, Polygram Records in, in America and the world, worldwide. So the first album was going to be, I was actually going to re-record some of the stuff from Nights of So Long, but then I decided to write new songs altogether. And I, I was also working with Phil Grandy, the guitar player, uh, who plays on most of on, on that album and all the tracks, actually. He, play, oh, he already played on Nights of So Long, but... We wrote some stuff with him. We had written, me and Steven had written, uh, we wrote uh, with Nasty Suicide, we did some stuff uh, where we wrote uh, Dead Yellow Rock and Roll and Smokescreen. And, you know, uh, while you're looking at me, little Steven wrote for me, which was a great, huge honor and uh, really uh, was had some killer lyrics. And uh, that was, I was so, so uh, chuffed that he would write a song for me. and. Yeah. Just, and he had a he had a vision about me that was was very good. You know, he could see what I'm, I was about, and he loves rock and roll. It's a real true rocker, and so and him, I had him singing backing vocals on that and on Dead Rock and Roll because he has the coolest voice. He's like the Keith Richards kind of, you know, backing vocal thing. And uh, except he goes, he usually goes uh, underneath the note, the lead note. You know, like Keith goes above it and uh, Stephen has usually the, his harmonies are like below the lead voice and uh, but it's so cool it sounds great so I had him sing on it and uh, Michael Frondelli who uh, apart from the four tracks of the Dead Yellow Rock and Roll and While You're Looking at Me and Smokescreen and uh, what was the fourth one was uh, uh, that we had done before She's, she's, she's No Angel I think yeah she's or, no well She's No Angel is the uh, the heavy metal kids cover yeah, yeah. So I had recorded those uh, with uh, with uh, Rod O'Brien recording uh, as an engineer. But then Michael Frondelli came in to we finished the rest of the album with Michael Frondelli as a, as a producer, as he was the engineer for the Rebel Yell album too. And uh, he had uh, worked with uh, Keith Richards on uh, Hell Hell Rock and Roll, uh, that Chuck Berry tribute and stuff. But you know, we had fun with him and. Yeah, it was it was like one of the last albums in the '80s that had that style. The production was kind of the '80s style, but it's still timeless because today, even this day and age, it sounds good. And mind you, on the first, back then they didn't have much bass in the mixes for some reason. I don't know, was it because of the uh, the vinyl, the grooves, or uh, for some reason that you know it wasn't that much bass in there. And as you can see on this uh, compilation, the best compilation has. Uh, it's been re- everything has been remastered, and mainly to to make it consistent, uh, for everything to sound sound more consistent. So, Dead Yellow Rock and Roll Man with No Eyes, have, they have more bass than they ever did before. I mean, in the sound, which only enhances it. I think uh, if you compare it to the original, uh, compare it with the original, it's got more bottom, you know, on the in the sound. And it's good to see that it's good to hear that this stuff still sounds great after all these years. I mean, the test of time is the the ultimate test, and uh, that goes to show if uh, your stuff is, if it's strong enough, it'll 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 survive. Rock. Yeah, um, you had, of course, Axel in the video. You were on the Spaghetti Incident. You have Slash with Mar- uh, Magic Carpet Ride. Talk to me a little bit about the the Guns and Roses connection. How, how did you meet the guys? Was it just simply hanging around L.A. and eventually you you met the guys? Or, no, or, no, 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 no. I lived in New York City. I was in New York and. Okay. Uh, they uh, 
also I played I played saxophone and harmonica on the, uh, uh, that song "Bad Obsession" on the Use Your, Use Your Illusion" album. Yeah, I, I mean Axel showed up at the video shoot for Dead Yellow Rock and Roll when I was we were filming that uh, uh, in Uptown SIR in in New York in in New York City. I mean that's where I I never lived in LA. I I, I was I lived in Manhattan. Uh, for 10 years in the same flat right across the street from the Hells Angels clubhouse in East 3rd Street between 1st and 2nd Avenue. So I was a New York guy. Uh, I was, uh, the Guns N' Roses, I mean, Axel um, happened to be walking by the video shoot and uh, he asked who's, who's shooting a video and uh, somebody said Michael Monroe. So he was like, all right. Uh, he, he liked my work and he liked Hanoi and he, he came to introduce himself and that's how we first met. And he was such a nice guy. We got along real well. We started talking about Nazareth, and you know, I guessed that he, I, 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 I knew that he must be, uh, I mean, he must dig Nazareth because he's singing is very much like Dan McCafferty. I could hear the Dan McCafferty influence in his voice, and uh, he didn't even know that. I actually, he didn't know that "Not Taking It" was not a uh, was a Nazareth song because that album was not very big. Apparently, that "Loud and Proud" album was not that well known in in America. I think "Hair of the Dog" was more known. And stuff, but uh, anyway, so he said he had heard the like a free copy of the album, and he said, you know, now he likes it even more when he heard that Nazareth, there was a Nazareth song there, and we got along real good, and then we he was kind of you know digging the song, so I said, you want to come up and do it a couple of times, you know, even though Little Steven sings the backing vocal there, so he came up and we filmed, we did a couple of takes with him, you know, joining us, and uh, so he ended up. In the video, as as a cameo appearance, he uh, he was kind enough to let us use that. You know, we sent him the edit of the video. Said, "Is it okay if you use it if, you, if you're featured on the video?" And he and he said, "Yes." And it was so cool. Yeah. That way, uh, you know, uh, I mean, he I didn't really know much about him, but I understood that he was, you know, fame, pretty famous. Or my manager was saying, of course, my manager at the time was like, "Hey, man, you know, he's gonna yeah, we gotta get get this guy on the video." And I was like, "Come on, man." Uh, he's on the video because he was a nice guy and we liked the same kind of things and we got along so well. So, And it was a cool thing to do. Besides, I mean, he maybe, yeah, surely he got me more fame. Through him, I got more fame. I mean, more people aware of myself. And uh, and then on my part, I think maybe maybe I uh, added a little bit more to his to his, his street credibility, you know. So it worked both ways. It was a cool thing to do. So I think the next thing we did with, then I met the rest of the guys in L.A. when I, I went to, I think it was the Rip Magazine party. That's where I met Alice Cooper for the first time. And they asked me to play some harp on uh, Heartbreak Hotel, with a version of that. And wow. I, I'm pretty sure that was the first time I met the rest of the guys. So um, we became good friends. And me and Axel, we used to have a nice friendship. And I really appreciated it. And uh, got along well with those guys. And they, they were into Hanoi and uh, and my work. Uh, they li- liked, liked me and I liked them. And so we collaborated on... Uh, uh, other occasions too. Uh, when they they were making the Use Your Illusion album, uh, they asked me to play some sax, some harp and sax on the song Bad Obsession. And I came to L.A. and I had made a tape, uh, an audio tape of some Dead Boys for Axel because he said he had never really heard them that much. So, and as we were listening to that tape and Ain't It Fun, that song came on. Axel said, you know, wow, this is a great song. He called Slash. He said, we got to do this on the compilation. I mean, I mean, on the cover album, on the Spaghetti Incident album that. Let's, he called Slash and said, let's put the band together. We're recording this song and doing it as a duet. And I was like, wow, that's, that'd be amazing. That could 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 be put on the album that is dedicated to the memory of Steve Baders. And he said, yeah, of course, that's it. That's just great, fantastic. So I never wanted anything for that except for them to write 
in memory of Stid Bader's on the album and just spell my name right. I didn't want any money or nothing. I, just, I got the session fee for playing the sax and the harp on the other song, and that was it. You know, I, I didn't want anything except the, the song to be on the album because I didn't want it to think that I was greedy. Or you know, of course, my manager at the time said, you know, he was gonna. He said, okay, let me negotiate a deal. This, you know, thinking of the the, the bank of Guns N' Roses, right? It's like you stay the hell away. You're not gonna touch this. You know, you stay. You, you're gonna do. do Jet man, I said you. This I just want to make sure that uh, Steve's name is going to be seen by millions of fans. That all these fans that the, that band had, so it's great exposure for that. So that's those are the reasons I did it for. Yep. And so we've been keeping in touch since uh, you know with Slash. I did the Magic Carpet Ride. He wanted me to sing on that, and uh, that project was fun. And uh, over the years, but see, when I moved out of the states, I kind of lost touch with uh, Axel and a lot of other people too. But uh, Whenever Slash came to Finland, he's played here. He, we, I've opened up for him twice with my band, and you know, I've been, you know, jamming with him and uh, on different occasions and stuff. And they're coming to Finland now, and uh, in two days, and on Saturday they're playing in Finland, and uh, we're going to be opening up for them. And I'm so happy that Slash and Duff are back in the band with Axel, and because it's that's the magical combination. So it'll be interesting to see. Uh, I'm yeah. sure it's going to be a great show. You know. Um, I don't know how much longer you have, but I do want to get over to um, the Two Steps from the Move album because we, we talked about John Regan and Anton Fig and sort of a k- Kiss connection there. This one is produced by Bob Ezrin and, of course, you know, a Kiss Destroyer, Pink Floyd The Wall. Um, what was it like working with Bob? Uh, Bob was great. Okay. He was fantastic. Uh, that was a great experience, great learning experience. Bob is fantastic. He's a genius. And he felt like he felt about the Alice Cooper band with us. And it really was like he was going to uh, continue with us. That was the plan. And uh, unfortunately, you know, the tragedy happened and all that. But uh, it was such a great guy to work with. And, and really, it was a learning experience for all of us. And I I certainly enjoyed it. And, and he taught me a hell of a lot. And I'm so happy that uh, he did that record. It was uh, actually it was my decision to use him because I... First of all, I think we really needed him, needed someone like that, and him because, of, especially because of all the masterpieces uh, that he ma- he did with he made with uh, Alice Cooper, that was uh, that was a really really great experience. He loved the band, he loved Drazzle, he loved our sense of humor, and uh, it was really too bad that it didn't continue. So yeah, he was he's he's a he, he's holy, you know. <laughs> It's great, yeah. It was it was a great experience, and that album I think it's the best al- album that Hanoi Rocks ever did. I'm still, that's the only album I can listen to with Hanoi Rocks that I don't have to skip any songs. <laughs> yeah, well, that, I think most of them you can play front to back. Uh, I know you have yeah. uh, interviews. There's also one skip- song like "Back to Mystery City," "Lick Summer Love." I can't stand that song. I always skip that one there because it's so corny. The lyrics are. I, I wish I'd made Andy <laughs> sing it because it's so stupid. But, anyways, you know, some people probably love it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know. Now I know you have an interview schedule every half hour. There's so much we didn't cover, from uh, Connie Bloom to Ginger to uh, Blackout States. What the next album? We'll have to do a, a part two at some point. Um, yeah, I'll be happy to. Yeah, and um, we'll just quickly, uh, next new album, is is something coming in 2018, or, or are we not there yet? Uh, the next album is half written, and uh, there's no no lack of songs at all. There's, we've got plenty of stuff here. Well, half the album is already written, and uh, when the time is right, we'll go in the studio, and we'll finish it, and we'll put it out. So uh, 
Yeah. Uh, within a year or so, we'll within we'll the next two years for sure at the latest, and we'll be out. It'll be out for sure. Yeah. Michael, thank you. Enjoy the next interview, and uh, we will do a part two uh, at some point. You got it, man. Thank you. thank you. Thank you so much. Cheers. Cheers. Bye bye. See you later. Bye bye. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk. Big thank you to Michael Monroe. New album is the best, a greatest hits compilation. You must, 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 must check that out wherever you check out music. And now to finish this episode of pure rock and roll, nothing gets purer than the biters. Their new album is called The Future Ain't What It Used To Be. And if you are looking for something fresh and new, that is the album for you. I sat down with lead singer Tuck, and so without further ado, here is from Biters singer Tuck. We are speaking with Tuck of the band Biters out of Atlanta, Georgia. Tuck, a great, great pleasure to to be speaking with you. I, I have been a huge supporter of the band. The last album you had out, Electric Blood, in 2015, one of the best albums of 2015, and now... The future ain't what it used to be in 2017 is most likely going to be in my top three for best albums of 2017. So, so congratulations on that just outstanding um, track record that you have in terms of album and releases. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. But, you know, I'll, people don't realize how much work goes into writing and making an album. And so, you know, when the important people like it, that makes it worth it. Yeah, so and you're so, important. Thank Don't you. Forget it. Thank you. But but talk to me about this because you listen. You know, just before getting on the phone with you, I was putting together my uh, Don Felder of the Eagles interview. I was you know stitching that episode and stuff together, and I've had Vivian Campbell on recently. And and so it's easy for those guys. They 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 come out, they put out a record, and off it goes. Uh, talk to me about being a new band and trying to reach out and find a fan base and trying to get heard and trying to get noticed because. I can't imagine it being easy. Well, I mean, I think you made a good point. Um, I think a lot of bands that have been around for like 20 years, let's say, on radio, and they have tracks, some of the tracks and music they're putting out now, if it was their first single, they would never be noticed. So there's definitely like an elite club. And if you're a newer rock and roll band, it's pretty hard unless you're playing the game. So for a band like Biters to get radio play in the U.S., or something like that, I would either A, have to have enormous financial backing, or play the game. And I mean that by conforming to whatever sound is on alternative radio or active rock. And so um, I'm very blessed to stand outside from the pack and, and kind of sound different, but there might be a handful of bands, newer bands like us, across the planet. So it's very small. So we're chipping away at trying to do radio and do that thing, without being labeled a retro rock act or a heritage act. And um, I think it's cool we stand out. It's just trying to find your place amongst all the uh, hip-hop and EDM. And stuff definitely goes through cycles, and I feel like there's a place for everything. But as far as new rock, I'm definitely seeing a lack of it. So that's what's important. Right. For, you know, podcasts and for new bands, et cetera, et cetera. So. Yeah, so, so so talk to me about the band's sound, because I do hear undercurrents of Cheap Trick. I do hear undercurrents of T-Rex. I do hear undercurrents of Kiss and, and even some Rush in there. But for me to sit here and say, you're just a copycat band, or, or you're just... I mean, it, that would just be completely false, because there is a freshness to it, but it's not 
uh, alternative radio. It's not sort of active rock radio. Um, was it a gamble to sort of to, to have that that sound that that sort of just pure rock sound? I mean, it's definitely a gamble, but it's it's nothing that I I deliberately chose. I just did it. That's the kind of music that I like, and I've always gravitated towards that kind of era of rock. I do like stuff from every generation, but what I write, what the band plays, that's what uh, that's what I dig. So I would probably feel insincere if I was like, oh, this is hot right now. This is cool. Let me do that. Um, you know, I still haven't used auto-tune on a record, and, and I try not... I don't want to be dated in a negative sense of, in 10 years, that sounds like it came out in 2017, where I put a bunch of stuff that's going to be fair weather on the records, and I try not to write about cell phones or tweets and it's easy to get caught up in the moment and it's great to live in the moment, but I would rather somebody look back on our records and it still rain, uh, maintain some kind of street cred, you know, 20 years from now, but it's definitely, it's definitely different, but I wouldn't have it any other way, man. I, I think for any artist, you should play and do whatever you want, regardless of what's cool. That's what my favorite artist did. So, yeah. And, and, and it's funny that you mention that because uh, there are some songs that I listen to that are just absolutely timeless. And then there are some songs, especially coming from the 80s, where you hear that sort of keyboard and you just go, ooh, ooh, that is so such an 80s keyboard. Um, talk to me about the approach in releasing albums and releasing music because, uh, and and I'll say this, you frustrated me on some things because I love to collect everything from a band and you've put a lot of stuff out just on vinyl, not available on, on CD, sometimes also just on the streaming services. Um, talk to me about the, your format choices and will you ever put out the entire collection, you know, on CD? Well, first Mitch, some people collect CDs, but you're one of the, the diehard people. I've seen you tweet like, Hey, needed on CD. Um, maybe I should just make you one. But the reason why we do vinyl is people, first of all, I'm a huge fan of vinyl. And I collect it. And I think it's really cool to have something you can hold in your hand. And uh, also another thing, people are still buying vinyl as something physical. Um, so I've just been doing vinyl and uh, online stuff. And I've released a lot of CDs, but yeah, I think I need to... Uh, amp it up, put it on CD. Maybe people will collect those like I do vinyl later on. Yeah, I mean, we, we us, uh, us older folks certainly do, and, and we love it. Now, 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 talk to me a bit about your influences, because you have uh, joined Cheap Trick on stage. Uh, talk to me about the bands. Where, where do you come from, and how did you discover these, these bands? How did you get into Alice Cooper? How did you get into all of that stuff? Well, I think, you know, Parent, your parents are the biggest influence on your life growing up. So my mom <clears throat> raised me on classic rock as a little kid. She listened to, she didn't really listen to that much 80s or 90s music. She was always into CCR and ACDC and Tom Petty and, and the Eagles. And my dad loved Boston and they, they wasn't really hip on music. So we just listened to that. And then I found myself as a teenager uh, completely submerging myself in punk rock. I mean, from L.A. hardcore scene, from Reagan Youth, Black Flag, Circle Jerks, all germs, all that stuff. Uh, and then a lot of 80s British punk and like anarcho punk. Well, then once you get into that, you're like, man, this is great. And then you discover a band like The Clash. And then once I found The Clash and Generation X and 
the boys and buzzcocks and adverts that classic kind of 70s punk you say well man that was happening in america oh here's the dead boys the ramones um that and then you say man nick jones from the clash was so cool i wonder what he likes and you're like oh man this guy loves mop the hoople and then before you knew it i was completely in love with that whole sound and i think what resonated the most was the glam 70s glam and then the big power pop stuff, like cheap trick, things like that. <clears throat> That's where I feel most at home. And it's kind of been a, a long path. And it's weird to some of the music you listen to as a kid in your mom's car. Um, that was already out 20, you know, 10, 15 years before. Come back to that full circle. Um, but the most powerful thing about all this is that those songs are still, they still feel good. They sound good today. So that's where I want to try to make my place. Yeah. So let's talk about the new album, The Future Ain't What It Used To Be. Uh, talk to me a little bit about the songwriting process and it's how it moved forward from what you were doing with Electric Blood. Um, you know, what? what is sort of the concept of the new album? Well, I mean, it's, it's a lot of things, man. I never grew up writing songs. It's something in the past seven or eight years that I've really tried to do. The last couple, I've really kind of buckled down on it. And at this point, I'm completely obsessed with trying to write killer songs. But, you know, I demoed 30 out for this record, and about halfway through, I changed the direction. Um, ended up writing a couple songs with big kind of glammy drum beats, and I was like, I really want to do this right now. Nobody's doing it. But I also wanted to make the fidelity-wise something that if you're a 14-year-old kid and you listen to modern music, you don't say, hey, this is granddad music. So I tried to merge the vibe and the feeling of all the records I love, but also make it the fidelity and the sonic structure to be able to compete nowadays. So that's kind of where I was at with that. In terms of the band and its success, is there sort of a plan of we give this five to ten years and we'll, you know, we're going to live out of the van? Or is there sort of a, if this album doesn't make it, we're done? Well, I mean, that's a really good question, man, because I toggle between fuck it all every day and an hour later I'm ready to take on the world. So, it, it's that, and, and you can apply that to a bigger thing because we've been, you know, we're on our third van and it's got 300,000 miles on it. We, we tour our asses off and we're not in a tour bus. It's great to be able to play music, but at some point you have to say, all right, is this really going to break? How long can I do this? So I don't have an immediate cutoff, but I think as long as we're spreading it and it's continuing upwards, which it has, um, I think I should try to stick it out. But on the other hand, I don't have any life skills, like normal life skills or job skills or skill set other than rock and roll, than writing and performing and working on stuff. So I'm, I've kind of have no way out. So I'm just going to take it as it comes. If, uh, if the biters doesn't make it to the, the next new album, is that something where you would, you would say, okay, I'm going to go and do a solo career or, or start up a new band or are you really invested in this lineup and this kind of music? I mean, we're not going to have an EDM tuck record down the road just to make a few bucks, are we? No, because my, like I said, my heart lies in rock and roll. If this record doesn't really break us, which I hope it does because I, I worked my ass off on it, um, 
I don't know what the future holds. I would also, I would love one day to write a solo record just, you know, because there's less pressure and less stigma attached and the biters, it's a thing. Everybody's like, it's gotta be this, uh, which is cool because you've branded yourself, but it's also, you can't reach out. We'll see this time next year. We'll see where I'm at, but I'll never say never to anything. Now, I uh, I have you on an episode today with Josh Todd of Buck Cherry. You've toured with them. Uh, talk to me about that experience, and but also the larger uh, context of touring and how how important touring is uh, is to a band like the Biters. Well, the cool one of the great things about Buck Cherry is they still want to take out younger bands, newer bands that are kind of waving the flag for rock and roll. And I know Keith, the guitar player, really wanted us on, and, and he mentioned a couple of other, other peer bands that are kind of doing something. And that's cool because, honestly, man, buy-on bands are ruling the world right now, and who your parents are or who you know, it's very bureaucratic like that. So Buck Cherry's like, we're going to take you guys out, we're going to pay you, and we want you guys to get in front of other people to help build the scene. And that's a great spirit to have. So they were always super kind to us. I have only positive things to say about them and they bust their ass, man. Um, they're actually a true rock and roll band. Um, so that was great. But as far as touring goes, we do a lot of club shows ourselves, a hundred, 150 people. Um, so to be able to tour and do some direct support stuff, which we've been doing lately, it's really important if you're not getting mass radio or there's not a, a giant niche, let's say like metal, there's an infrastructure if you're a metal band and you can kind of hop on and do tours. But for rock and roll, it's really important to do the direct support tours to get in front of bigger fans to get discovered. So you got to tour nowadays. And that's the only way you can really make money is hustling your merch. So yeah. that's what it's all about. Yeah, and of course, uh, both being KISS fans, we know that uh, the our... Our wisdom, our, our leader of wisdom, Gene Simmons, once said, "Rock is dead," which, of course, I don't believe at all. Um, what did you think when he came out and said that? There's two sides to the coin. I don't think rock and roll will ever die because it's more of a lifestyle and a spirit as well as a form of music. I think he was saying it in the mainstream industry; it's dying, like the blues or jazz. It's become like. Uh, Heritage acts are doing really good now. So I think he's saying the influx of new bands, the resurgence of young kids wanting to play guitar and what the rock star is, is dying. I don't think it's dead, but I just read an article the other day and, they, and guitar companies are selling less guitars than they ever have. So instead of kids wanting you know, to be a big rock star, um, they're doing other things, which is fine. The planet's got to evolve, but I'm out here working every night. I see, I see how, how it is. So it's definitely need some help, but it will never die. I don't think it'll never die. And speaking of rock no. clubs, the one thing that I've uh, really been bothered by over the years is clubs that start shows really late. They'll get a band to start at 11, 1130 and go till, you know, one in the morning. Uh, is that something that you've encountered? And, and do you think that, those late start times are hurting uh, the club scene and hurting rock bands? Honestly, I think it depends what type of band you are or what level. Uh, if we play in Atlanta, say Biter's Headline, nobody shows up before 11. When we go on at 12 o'clock, it's sold out. 12.30 sold out. 
So if you're kind of a bar band, people want to show up fashionably late, and that does help. But when we're on big package tours, we play at 8 p.m., and it's and it's that's just the way it is. So, yeah, I guess it depends on what kind of band you're doing. I know some people, like we were on tour with Blackberry Smoke, and we were on, off stage by 8.30 every night, very early shows. That is remarkably early, but... Uh... <laughs> Works for me. I uh, like playing. I like playing early because you don't get enough sleep as it is, anyways, on tour. So if I can, you know, so give it to me at nine p.m., I'm fine. Yeah. So I, I will remind the folks to uh, to head over to bitersband.com. The new album is "The Future Ain't What It Used to Be." Uh, folks, if you're looking for something new, th- this is the band. I mean, if you like, uh, you know, Michael Monroe from Hanoi Rocks, and you like uh, Buck Cherry, and you like Kiss and Cheap Trick and Alice Cooper and and everything in between. Uh, the biters are for you, uh, Tuck. Always a pleasure to, to speak with you, and, and I Thanks, wish you, man. yeah, I, I wish you continued success because it's it's very rare that a new band comes up that just excites, uh, well, excites me. Uh, you know, you guys, the Black Star Riders, um, just great stuff, great, great stuff. And, yep. um Yeah, it is. I love Black Star Riders. Ricky actually came on stage and played. Cowboy song with us in LA. He's a great dude, but yeah. I agree with you too, Mitch. Thank you so much for uh, spreading the word and supporting bands like us, man. It means a lot. Well, you you sort of have to, right? I mean, you can't just sit here and say, you know, I'm a Kiss fan and and that's it. It ends here. Thanks. I mean, that that it, it doesn't work that way. I, you you need to support new blood. To be honest, man, I've seen a lot of people. They don't want to give it up for new bands. They're like, I like David Bowie and I like. Et cetera, et cetera, but I don't care about these new guys. And people, there's a stigma attached to being new. And I think if right now some of my favorite bands came out today, people would talk shit on them. So it's a different mentality, man. But I don't know. Yeah, you know, that is actually an important point. I think, you know, having grown up in the 70s and 80s, when Kiss brought out Cheap Trick, you would all automatically say, oh, well, I need to check out Cheap Trick. And when Aerosmith brought out whoever, you'd go, well, I need to check out whoever. Nowadays, when you go to a show, it seems like, oh yeah, they're opening. Well, okay, I'll, I'll, it gives me a, you know time for an extra beer, and it's like, well, no, <laughs> it's true. It's true. They make you earn it. You got to earn it today for direct support. So, but you know what, man, you got to adapt. I'm up for the challenge. So. Yeah. So what? So where? Where do? Where does the end of 2017 bring us? What? What is sort of the plan? And will there be a more uh, intensive? Canadian tour coming up and and so what what are the plans going through here to to Christmas? Well, we just had a Canadian tour booked, but our drummer had a DUI and Canada will not let you in if you have a DUI. So he's been going through the court system to get it dropped. As soon as we get that, we'll come to Canada. But I know we're doing some big festivals and we have a big uh, European tour in November planned with with direct support for a pretty big band, which is going to be great, but I can't say it yet. Yeah, we'll get to Canada as soon as we get out of legal trouble. Don't worry. <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, Tuck, again, always a pleasure. And, uh, folks, go buy The Future Ain't What It Used To Be. Yeah. And then when you're done, buy go buy Electric Blood. And then if you, have, if you have a vinyl player, go buy all the other EPs. And, uh, you know, there you go. Uh, thank you, Tuck. Thank you, buddy. Download new episodes of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn every Monday at Podcast One and on the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe at iTunes. And don't forget to rate, review, and share.
President Trump denies it. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. President Trump denies on Twitter using vulgar language when questioning why the U.S. would accept more immigrants from Haiti and African nations. 17 dead, 43 missing in Southern California after Tuesday's heavy rain and devastating mudslides. Santa Barbara County Sheriff Bill Brown is asking people to evacuate some areas so search and rescue crews can do their jobs. It is seriously impacting the ability of search and rescue, public works, other first responders and repair crews to clear roadways and to engage in search and rescue repair and damage assessment operations. Missouri Governor and former Navy SEAL Eric Greitens is now under investigation after acknowledging an extramarital affair but denying anything more, including accusations that he tried to blackmail the woman into keeping quiet. I'm Rita Foley.